Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. The passage is from Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, and it's subtitled, Jew and Gentile Reconciled Through Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. In case we haven't met yet or you don't recognize me, my name is Dave, and I serve on staff here at Upper Room. And uh, uh, last year at the uh, global market, um, we, a bunch of young people raised enough money to shave off my beard, and I tried to escape it by being in Bolton on that particular Sunday, but it turns out there they raised enough money to do that as well, and I even ended up shaving uh, Mark McDonald, a fellow who oversees our Ignite ministry there. They shaved his head, and uh, I feel like he got the worst of it, to be honest with you, but... Um, I don't know. Anyways, really good to be with you. And uh, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, then you'll know that we are working through a series called Liar Liar, in which we are uh, observing, paying attention to the truth about evil, but also emphasizing the ways that we're able to overcome it. And uh, when we think about evil or the idea of evil, the concept of evil, it tends to have or seems to have a bit of weight associated with it, as it should. For example, if, if uh, you know, you, uh, a child talks back to their parent, you're not going to say, well, that child is evil. You're going to say, well, they're just learning their manners, or maybe they were a little bit rude. We don't necessarily ascribe evil to that kind of action. Um, but there are things that go on in our world where we see, uh, you know, they kind of, they're the things that we see that go on in our world that actually give us kind of like a gut-wrenching kind of feeling. And so as soon as we hear about it in the news, or as soon as we witness it, or as soon as we participate in it, we have this sense of knowing that evil is more than just, you know, bad manners, or it's more than just being a little bit morally bad. It's, 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 it's about it being intensely, or especially, or almost intentionally immoral, or evil, or 
or, and so let me give you an example, right? We have no shortage of these examples in our world, and some of them we even touched on as we prayed, right? But what's big in the news right now, as it should be, is that a few weeks ago, a man who is absolutely overcome uh, in, in, in terms of um, being subscribed to these very extreme racial supremacist ideas and philosophies, is driven to such extreme xenophobia that he breaks the law by going and uh, altering his semi-automatic weapons to the point where he's able to walk into a mosque and murder over 50 Muslims as they're there worshiping. And, and part of this was actually live-streamed. And, and for quite some time, he had actually been preparing to do this and actually announcing it in his own way online in some communities with other people that have like-minded ideas. And this, we look at that and that makes us feel sick. We look at that and we say, okay, no, that's, that's evil. That's not the way that the world is supposed to work. And the kind of fear that gets instilled as the result of that type of evil actually shows us uh, how significant evil is by comparison to just some other stuff. Uh, for example, my wife, who's a teacher, was talking with another teacher at her school who's a, wom- uh, who's a Muslim woman. And as they were talking about faith and other things, uh, her friend says, well, at least in your church, there are seats that you can hide behind in case something else happened, in case something went down in the mosque. When we're worshiping, we're just out in the open there in a big room. If anybody were to come in, we don't even have anywhere to hide. And so this, this is kind of helping us understand what evil is, right? It's like strategic and it's, it's all over the place and it's widespread and it's more complicated or more complex, I should say, than just simply things that are right or things that are wrong. You with me on that? And, and as we've been observing these things over the past couple of weeks, we've, we've been trying to get this point across that evil doesn't just exist on its own, but wherever evil is done, there is an evil one. Or there's an evil one behind all of the evil that is done. And this is Satan. Satan is the primary enemy of God, the primary enemy of people, and his desire is to destroy every single one of us. And he has been working since the beginning of human time to do this very thing, to alienate people from God, their creator, and alienate us from one another. And one of the ways we've seen that he does this most intentionally, the ways that he does the work that he does, is through telling lies through exchanging what is true, what is reality, for something that is false, something that is not a reality. And, and because there's been this kind of nonstop, overwhelming, we've been inoculated with all of these things, we get confused where, where we actually start to say, well, I don't even know what truth is anymore. I don't even know what reality is anymore because we've begun to believe all of these things that are lies, that are not true about ourselves, about others, about God, to the point where we're confused. We don't know which way is up, which way is down. We don't know what is right or what is wrong. And when this begins to happen, this is where all sorts of confusion and evil enter into the world because now we don't even know how we were supposed to live in the first place. The ways that we're choosing to live now for ourselves could be very well an opposite of what the Creator had intended for us, but we don't know because we believe the lie and we've exchanged truth for lies, and we don't even know anymore. And, and um, one of the lies that Satan has been using or telling for ages is that differences must divide us. Differences divide us. This is what we're going to be kind of looking at this morning. 
This idea where if you are different than another person, it's not so much that you just have and don't have too much in common, or you just have some different ideas. It's not just that that's how it is, but rather those things, those differences are, are actually meant to divide us. By definition, we think, of def- we think of differences as being the things that actually force us away from other people or other people away from us. Those are the things that have to come in. There isn't a way that we can actually work together or be united or be one because of all of the various differences that exist, especially in a place like the GTA, right? With so much diversity, all of these differences, they don't actually drive us together. They're supposed to drive us apart. And, and we might say, and, and, and actually, these are the kinds of things that motivated the type of evil that went down in New Zealand, right? And even yesterday in Toronto, there was a, 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 an anti-Islamic rally, and there was police activity and all sorts of things, because it's not just over there, it's over here, Right? And so we might look at that kind of division, the kind of philosophy or ideas that, that drive that kind of uh, division, and we'd say, well, that, that seems a little extreme. I, I don't, I, I've never participated in anything like that, or, or I don't intend on participating in anything that extreme, and, and that may be true, and, and hopefully it is true, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other differences in the way that our lives are, the way that our backgrounds are, and and the differences we have with others that we aren't allowing to drive us actually apart from each other, as opposed to giving us something to celebrate unity in the midst of diversity. And so the ways that we do this is we allow ethnic differences uh, to become more than just about a place where a person comes from or the kind of food they eat, but we begin or, or celebrating the way that they were raised and the differences and all that. Instead, it starts to become, well, because of your background, you are you think differently, and I, I, I process things differently. And, 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 and it, I mean, if you're going to live here, then actually you need to maybe submit or leave behind some of those things that you've learned from your culture. If you're going to live in this place, then you actually need to learn the way that we do things here. And what does that become? Things that were differences in people from the places in the world that we come from turn into reasons to actually say, I don't want actually to have too much part with you. And, and, and I want to be careful and know that, you know, there, we obviously, there are many, I, I'm sure there are people in the room that would say, hold on, that's, I, I've never gone that far, but it doesn't mean that the lie that differences must divide us isn't still there and doesn't necessarily play itself out in other ways. Or religion as another example. Uh, you know, we can get to a point of talking with folks from uh, various world religions and before we know it, it becomes about who's right and who's wrong and why we should or shouldn't associate with them as opposed to it becoming something that could be a search for God or a search for truth. And, and that actually harms the way that we're able to interact with one another because we're naturally going to either choose to isolate ourselves and say, well, you're, the differences between you and I are so, are so significant, there's no way we could ever overcome these things. So I'm actually going to isolate myself and pull back and, and actually force you away from me as well. Or we end up just hanging around with people who think exactly like us believing the same thing, doing the same thing, living the same kind of lives, the same parenting style, the same upbringing, the same cultural background, the same ethnic background, whatever it may be. And both of those things are the result of believing this lie that differences must divide us. And this is not the way that it was ever meant to be. And, and we might look around the world and see these things out in the news or maybe even a lot closer to us uh, in our interpersonal lives or in our places of work or our school or, or wherever else. We might see these kinds of divisions in those places, but the reality is it exists inside the church too. 
And, and we can often get caught up in thinking about how we in the church are, are so much different than all of them. And, and many churches, uh, it, unfortunately, actually allow the differences we have to become things that divide us as opposed to opportunities to connect with one another, right? And so when I talk about the church, let me just clarify myself there for a second. I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about a local church, right? So we as a gathering here are a local church, Okay, we're one group of Christians, but there are groups of Christians all across our country, all across the world that are gathering under one name to worship Jesus, to learn about him. And we would say that this is the, the, the church, the capital C universal church, Christians everywhere, wherever they may be. And, and the, the, the vision or the idea behind what unites us, even though we're here and we've got, you know, another congregation in Bolton, which is really not that far away, but there could even be things that we could say, well, the cultural differences or the regional differences are too significant. Maybe that actually leads to a div- We could look at all that and we could say, uh, well, I guess that's how it has to be, but that's not actually what the picture of the Christian life is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be one where we're all separate, kind of thinking our own things, right? And these divisions sneak into the church in all sorts of ways. Well, you know, they might have a little bit of, you know, other churches might have a a bit of a different uh, approach to worship. Or maybe we don't exactly see eye to eye on a particular doctrine. Or or the traditions that they seem to employ seem to be a little too off base. You know, I just can't find that in the Bible. Or I just can't seem to connect with that. And so these actually don't become things that we celebrate and saying, wow, we have so much to learn through the eyes of other people that follow Jesus. Instead, we say these are actually things that should separate us. And this division starts to happen especially when we lose sight of what God's vision for the church has always been. And when we, when we lose sight of what God has done to break, the wall, break down the walls that divided us and him, we won't be able to break down the walls that divide us from other people. And I want to talk about this specifically in the context of the church today. And some of you in the room might be saying, well, uh, you, uh, you, some of you in, my, in the room might be kind of like skeptical towards God or skeptical of the church because of the division that you have seen, or because of the differences that you have seen. And you say, well, you know, I don't know if I actually want to listen to somebody who works for a church talk about how the church is actually supposed to be the model for unity or oneness in the world, because when I think of division, actually the first thing I think about is the church. And the way that there have been these holy wars or the ways that there have been these denominational battles and the ways that there have been church splits or or the way that the church has talked about let's be accepting to all people but actually hasn't really been that. It looks nice in a vision statement plastered on a mug but when it actually comes down to, you know, trying to actually live it out, it's very, very difficult. And if that's what you're thinking or what you're seeing, if you have a bit of that, well, first of all, I'm so glad that you're here. And secondly, I need to say, like, if that has been the picture of the church that you've had, then I want to apologize. And if that's been a picture, if you've looked even at Upper Room and seen a sense of division or or, or difficulty in terms of being connected and being a part of the greater body of people, then we apologize for that. That is not our intention. That is us, again, losing sight of all the ways God has broken down the walls that have divided us and Him, and we've therefore been unable to do it from person to person as well because we've lost sight of that. And so we heard a few minutes ago from Serena who read from Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, what this entire letter is about is about this idea of, of unity in the name of Jesus or oneness in the name of Jesus. 
And so the Apostle Paul, he's the person who wrote this down, uh, while he was imprisoned, uh, he actually wrote a series of letters to a number of different churches. And in this letter, he wrote it, uh, and it was first sent to a church in Ephesus. And as you read through any book of the Bible, as you read through any of the New Testament letters, one thing we tend to pick up on is the theme or the general big idea of what's going on. And so the entire theme of the book of, of Ephesians, or the letter of Ephesians rather, is about unity with God, or oneness with God, and oneness with one another. And you see it played out in all the different ways. The way that we are made right or brought into a a, a peaceful, reconciled relationship with God, how this happens uh, with one another, and then he applies it in in terms of families, in terms of marriages, in terms of workplace uh, relationships. He did all all spectrums of life. And so we could look at this letter and we could say, wow, this idea of unity must have been a really big issue in the church in Ephesus because that's the general theme. That's obviously what he was hitting. But I did a little reading, and here's what James interesting about this, this letter. This likely would have been what's called a circular or circulating letter, a circular letter, a letter that was meant to not be held in one place or given to one particular group of people, but it was meant to be read to a certain group of people and then circulated around, shared around so that they would all hear the same message. And what I love about that is this doesn't just say, well, let's learn some stuff about this church 2,000 years ago and see what their problem was. This was actually something Paul was putting his finger on and saying, there is an issue with, with, with unity in all of the churches, with all Christians everywhere. And how crazy is it that here we are, thousands of years later, and the issues that he was touching on there are still relevant today. So when we look at this being, yeah, that was one letter with one teaching that was meant to circulate through a variety of churches in Asia Minor, like where modern day Turkey is. Here we are on the other side of the world from where Turkey is living, you know, and doing church and all these kinds of things in a way that Paul maybe in his wildest dreams could never have imagined or even known. And here we are still facing problems, needing to actually say, maybe we have believed the lie that our differences must divide and we can't be united that the walls can't be broken down. Still relevant to us today. And so if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, when I, when I was here, um, we kind of looked at the, the big idea of, of how God, in his love, made the first move to break down the walls of hostility that existed between us and, and him. Okay? This is this vertical kind of peace, this vertical kind of reconciliation. And Paul emphasizes dramatically using like strong clear language that it wasn't about anything we did in our own efforts because he uses the language of being spiritually dead and dead things don't get up and live by themselves. They need an outside power or an outside influence to do something to bring them back to life. And this is what Paul explains. The walls that divided us from our creator, from God, the the wall was death. Like that's a big wall. And God in his love, says that wall itself is still not even too big for me to do what needs to be done to give you the gift that is my son, Jesus, who brings with him life and who brings with him forgiveness and who brings with him salvation from your sin, from your separation to me, but also salvation from yourself and the corruption and the evil that exists within us. He's also saving us and cleansing us and purifying us of those things. And Paul starts the whole thing by saying, that wasn't on you. God did that. He made the offer. He made the move. You received that life as a gift. You didn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. 
You couldn't buy it if you wanted to or think you had enough money to do that. And so he takes that, and now he starts moving it into this kind of horizontal relationship. And so he says, because God did what was necessary to break down the walls that divided you from him, or us from him, we can now also have confidence that he has done and is continuing to do the things that exist as um, walls of hostility between us and other people. And as he writes, and as Serena mentioned, you would have heard as you read through chapter two there, uh, he uses two groups of people as the primary example for this, Jews and Gentiles. Now, if you're paying attention to the way that it was written down, uh, Paul actually uses the word circumcised and uncircumcised. And in his writing, he puts them in quotations. Now, what he's doing here is he's saying, okay, Jews, clearly that was the circumcised group, and uncircumcised would have been Gentiles, anybody who wasn't uh, a Jew. But what he's actually doing, Paul is saying almost like, hey, guys, I know that circumcised and uncircumcised are like ethnic slurs you guys use to talk about one another. And so Paul is not employing the racial slur. Instead, he's saying like, uh, busted. I know how bad this has been, and I know how bad it continues to be because he's giving this to a group of Christians who have now been made new in Jesus Christ, and he's saying you still use those kinds of words to talk about each other. Why? Because they must have continued to believe the lie that their differences must divide them, and Jesus himself wasn't enough to unite them, to break down the walls of hostility that once did live there. Now, other Cultures, other people groups would have practiced circumcision as well, <clears throat> but um, the Jews would have been most commonly understood of being people who were circumcised because it was connected to their, their lineage, it was connected to their faith, it was a very public kind of thing. I know that's a weird idea that their circumcision was a public thing, but the idea was that this was work that was done by the flesh. It was evidence they could say, I'm part of the family of God. I'm so committed to my faith because this has been something that I've done. And, and because of their lineage, and we read this story throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, right? The, the first half of, of what we have is our Bible today. As we read through this, what we see is it tells the entire story of the Jewish people and their connection to God and how he did choose them as a particular group of people to work through. And what they were believing was that, well, because we have this lineage, because we've got the circumcision, because we've practiced all of these other things, clearly... We must be more loved by God than the Gentiles. Or clearly we must be closer to God than the Gentiles. Or or clearly we must have more access to the rights of what it means to be a child of God than, than any Gentile ever could because it's part of our whole entire identity. And this led them to kind of give the Gentiles, anybody who was not a Christian, or anybody who was not a, a Jew, I should say, with a Jewish background, kind of give them like the second seat. Or like push them away. And different things were happening throughout the church where Jewish Christians were now eating at a table and the Gentile Christians were like at another table and they weren't eating even the same food. And so Paul is hitting this point and saying, you're allowing this lie that your differences have to divide you to be so strong that you are actually, um, you're almost, what's the word, like disregarding what Jesus has accomplished in giving up his life, setting aside his flesh, that's giving up his life to make you one with one another. And, and there's so much 
that they could have celebrated to say, wow, we come from this Jewish heritage. Wow, you come from this Gentile heritage and we can learn so much about our backgrounds, but now we can look at each other and interact with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, children of the living God, our creator. But instead of celebrating those things, they allowed them to continue being walls that divided them. Right, like the Jews had food laws and they had um, various... um, holidays or traditions that they would celebrate, holy days. Um, They were circumcised. Gentiles didn't have any of that stuff. You know, wherever they came from, whatever their background was, they they likely came from worshiping some pagan god. And so the the Jews continued to hold this against them, and the Gentiles probably would have felt like, yeah, I, I get it a little bit. As much as it would have hurt, as much as it wouldn't have been, as much as it definitely was not right by what Jesus accomplished, the Gentiles would have been like, yeah, I get it. Maybe we are like second class. Maybe we won't ever just really fit in. And I believe there's like a place for us, but, but maybe, maybe there's actually something to this. Why? Because they too were even believing the lie that differences must divide. And so there was a time we know this as we read scripture, as we hear the word preach. We do understand that there was a time where, and this passage itself says, there was a time when the Gentiles were separate from God. But that's all changed now. This is the purpose of the gospel. This is the purpose of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. This is the point of what Paul is getting at. It says, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus is not just the way to peace, He is peace. He's the embodiment of peace. His presence means peace. The work that he did in his life was to bring peace. In his death was to seal with finality this sense that whoever would believe in him would be at peace with our creator God through faith in him and at peace with one another. He's not just somebody that gave us peace for a time and then it's like, hey, where'd that peace go? He's the person who actually sustains and maintains peace among us. And so I love how it talks about a new humanity because sometimes when we think about what's going on in the world, the the evil or the division or or whatever other issue there might be, we want to say, oh, it's just like we have to start over again. Or I just wish we were, we just were like, I just wish there was a new way. Or, Or even outside, I mean, within scripture and within the church, we talk about this idea of being a new creation or, or living the new life. Those are the things that Jesus gives us. But this is even talked about uh, in the world, right? A new you, right? This is the philosophies that are all over the place, plastered on the front of magazine, particularly in the January edition of whatever that magazine might be. New year, new you, right? Well, what is that getting at? We need a fresh start. We need to start over. We need a new beginning. This is exactly what Jesus did. There was a time when there were two groups, Jews and Gentiles, but that's no more. Now, through me, through Jesus, he says, this is the new humanity. There is an entirely new way of connecting with God, relating to him, and relating with one another. Yes, you still have your backgrounds. Yes, you still have your diversity, but the number one most important thing to you 
is your relationship with Jesus. And even though we've all got these differences, we've got that one thing that is most important in common. Paul is saying that, okay, God has done what is necessary, again, to um, break down the walls of hostility that existed between us and him. And he's also done and is doing the work that is necessary to do the work between us. I keep using this now and not yet language. He's done it and he's doing it. I don't mean to confuse anybody. In one sense, I believe with full conviction that what is needed to be made right with God is finished. That's what Jesus's life, death, and resurrection was about. And what is necessary for us to be uh, at one or in unity with one another is, is done. It's finished because Jesus has created the new humanity. It's done. But the reason I keep saying he's doing it is because we have this real world, this real life sensation that even though I I know it's done or I believe it's done or I'm learning to see how it's done, I still feel like it's being put into play or it's being put into practice. And, and, And this helps us, right? Because it means that we're not clueless when it comes to trying to unite with one another. We can say, okay, if the work is already done, If the barriers that are broken down, if there's no reason for hostility or division anymore, then absolutely we can connect with one another. And Paul continues and he uses this language of foreigners and strangers. He says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but instead you're fellow citizens with God's people and also member of his household. That's very practical, good language. In the ancient world, foreigners that were visiting your home country would have been viewed with suspicion. You would have been weary of them, right? If you were in another, if you were in another nation or, or, living or going or visiting another place, you would kind of be on edge that you were now the foreigner, or you were the stranger, you didn't know how you'd be treated. And so Paul says, yeah, this did happen for a while, but no more. Now you share the same citizenship. You have the same passport. And, and, and he uses the familial language, which would have spoken to their culture so significantly, especially to the Jews who her, family heritage was so important. He's saying, you, you now are part of the family of God. And you have rights and access to God the Father, just like any one of his children does. Whatever your background has been, now you are part of the new humanity by faith in Jesus. He has broken down the walls of hostility that have divided us and him and us and others. And so I think this raises two questions for us at least before I get into some practical ways that we can maybe live this out. The two questions I have for us to just think about for a second is one is, are you still believing the lie that differences between us are too big to be overcome and ultimately must divide us? And one of the ways I think lies work is again, they become our truth. We exchange what might be true or what is true for something that isn't, and this becomes our truth. So the question I'm really getting at, the question under this question is, do you, have you just fallen into this idea of saying, well, we're too different, we never could overcome those things, and that's just the way it is, what are you going to do? That's just the way I am, that's just the way they are, this is just what my background is. I didn't choose my background, I didn't choose to be born here of this kind of family. Uh, maybe they, they didn't choose it either, but... That's just the way it is. What are you going to do? That's when it leads us to actually maybe almost a sense of apathy or or intentionally bridging these divides and saying, well, we couldn't anyway, so why bother even trying? Or are you seeing how Jesus has begun the work of breaking down the dividing walls of hostility and is making it possible for us to be one? Because like I said, here's the thing. The moment you chose to follow Jesus... You began following him. That's when you decided that he was going to be the number one priority in your life. 
And, and maybe you decided to begin following Jesus, but you weren't even really sure, and you couldn't say that explicitly yet. But in the journey of being his disciple, of being his follower, you're learning what it means for him to be the Lord of your life, to be the most important leader in your life, the number one influencer in your life. And so what this means for each one of us who is a follower of Jesus is that if he is the most important thing to us, the most important person to us, the most important uh, part of our lives, we have in common the most important thing. And so it doesn't matter what any of our backgrounds could be. We start with what's most important to us, and that is Jesus, which is why we can come in this room together and whatever our weeks have looked like, or whatever, however crazy, whatever our mornings look like, whatever your life looked like from 9.30 to 9.45, in the chaos of trying to get here, some of you are like, 9.45? You mean like 9.45 to 10.10, trying to get here. Whatever the chaos looked like, we can come in from all these different ways of life and walks of life, and we can sing songs together in unison that are about Jesus and say, that is what we have in common. That is what unites us. His life, His death, His resurrection, His power, His glory, His love, His mercy, the ways He works. Whatever our differences might be, we have those things in common. And so the truth is we can't ever, we, we won't have, the more we lean into that, we won't have difficulty relating with one another. You know, later on in the letter, again, remember the whole theme of the letter of Ephesians is around this concept of, of walking in love or walking in unity. And so later on in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, follow God's example and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, love one another, is what he gets at. And so if, if what we have in common, not just in this room as this church, but as followers of Jesus, if we have him in common, then we actually don't need to be divided over the different styles of worship. We don't need to be divided over the differences in particular views on doctrine we don't need to be divided over uh, various methods of how um, one church or another church or one Christian or another Christian goes about uh, living their life in terms of how they're going to reach others. We don't actually need to be divided over those things. Instead, we get to say, wow, what an opportunity we get to see all of the various efforts and energies all striving for one goal. We don't have to be competitors and contenders with one another. We're not running a business. Instead, we're saying, actually, the more we work together and the more different we are, the more there is to celebrate because it means we're going to be able to impact the world in a much larger, much wider way. So if we truly love Jesus and he is the number one in our lives, then he, we can know that he is going to continue to do what is necessary to help us love others. And so practically speaking, here's what I'm going to like homework for us. We need to learn to like those we love. We need to learn to like those we love. In Christ, we have been loved and we are now able to love others. And we can sing the songs and we can have this theoretical idea of, well, yes, of course I love my neighbor. Of course I love other people. But do you even like them? Right? It's like, and, and I need to ask myself that question too, right? Like, what, like, you get what I'm saying there? Like, we can just let love be this big idea, but if you don't actually like someone, if you don't actually like being around them, or you don't like the way that, you know, they kind of deal, their, live their life, or, well, then when you have to ask the question, are we actually loving them? Tim Keller, pastor in the States, um, and writes like a book every 17 minutes, um, really influential guy, 
um, in his very early days, before he even planted his church, Redeemer, in, in, in New York, um, he was uh, serving in a smaller town and, and it was very, very busy with ministry, often uh, not taking a regular day off and, and was being swamped by just the busyness and the needs of his church. And he recalls that at one point there was a particular family that was, was particularly difficult and they had so many needs and they were just really exhausting him and tiring him out. But he was committed to serving the church and loving others in Christ. And so he, he, he spent time with them. And eventually he was able to take some time off. And his wife, Kathy, says, hey, uh, what do you want to do on, with your time off? What do you want to do on your day off? And he says, oh, I'd really like to go and, and, and spend time with, with, with so-and-so. The family that was causing him the exhaustion and the burnout and the tiredness. And his wife goes, oh, Really? Like of all the people you could spend time with, you want to go spend time with, with those ones? And, and that's where this idea comes from because Tim Keller says, well, yeah, in my commitment to loving them in Christ, it turned out that I actually began to like them too. And, and there's something for us to learn in this. And, and I, I want to be careful with what I'm saying because as I go into these ideas, right, you're going to feel like, oh no, maybe I'm an unlikable person and if I get asked for lunch, that means that I'm actually labeled as this unlikable person and the whole church knows that. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Rather, what I'm saying is we're all in the room together. We all have differences and we actually have to get over our own things that we think are the differences that hold us back from others before we even are able to judge or adjudicate wherever they may be in terms of their differences that hold them back from us, okay? So it's like a level playing field. That's the whole point of the guys. No Jews, Gentiles, level playing field. We are one, brothers and sisters. Here's where we start. Embrace potential awkwardness. How theological is that? I can't say for sure, because I have no medical training, but I will say something that I believe. Awkwardness won't kill you. It won't be your cause of death. Awkwardness, uncomfortableness, it won't. And so we get so hung up on the fear, oh, it's just going to be so weird, and I've, like, I've known them, but it's been like 10 years, and we, you know, we, for a couple of years or a couple of months, or like, I kind of forgot their name. It's just going to be awkward. Okay, get over it. It's going to be awkward. Everybody's awkward. The most exciting and fun things happen in the midst of awkwardness. Just let it be. Just embrace the potential awkwardness. Don't try to avoid that as if you're trying to save your life. I don't have a passage to back that up. It's just my life, but mostly being awkward and seeing how others have reacted with me. It's like, okay, nobody's going to die. We're all going to make it. Okay? Again, secondly, rather, make the time. Make the time to actively pursue these relationships. To say, because I'm convinced that I am one with God, knowing that I can be one with you, I am going to make the time to put this into practice. Stop waiting to find the time. We'll never find it. We're always out of it. We're always wishing we had more of it. There's never enough of it. So instead of just saying, I, I, when I find the time, then I'll, I'll ask somebody out for a coffee or lunch or to get together for a play date with their kids or, or whatever, instead make the time. Mark space in your calendar and your weekly rhythm to say, this is when we're going to intentionally work towards spending time with others. And instead of just filling it up with the people that you get along with real easily, instead say, you know, there's a family at church or another person at church or whomever that I really want to actually spend that time to go out and hang out with them or, or have them over. Actually, secret. There is a Wendy's at Pine Valley and Highway 7 that is basically empty following service on Sunday. 
I don't see why afterwards in the 30-minute party, you couldn't go over to somebody that you don't really know and just say, hey, getting over the potential awkwardness, hey, what's your name again? I've told you 70 times. Oh, yeah, right, but just one more for good measure, right? You're getting over the awkwardness. How, are you guys up for going for lunch today? I heard there's a Wendy's down the road. Doesn't have to be a big deal. 45 minutes, an hour, hang out, eat a cheap meal, spend that time together and say, wow, what a great opportunity we had to say that there's nothing that'll divide us because we're one. And at the very least, you know, you might say, well, what? I don't know what we're going to talk about. It's so awkward. Well, you've embraced awkwardness. No problem. Now you've made the time. The next thing is you've got Jesus in common. So start there. How'd you, what's your story about Jesus? How, what's Jesus' story that he's writing in your life? How'd you get connected to the church? How long have you been connected to the church? Are, are you, where are you? And you're like, just start talking about him. You'll be amazed at how much you have to talk about when you talk about the thing that's most important to you in your life. And lastly, kind of in connection with the last one, is just walk across the room. I can see all your faces right now. The movie theater isn't set up in the best way for you to kind of start looking around, right? And if anybody's looking around and they're staring at you, it's because they're trying to figure out your name. Like <laughs> They think they know it, and they're trying to wonder, oh, it's so awkward, but I have to go get their name. It, just, just walk across the room. Following service, instead of only talking to the people you always talk to, Go and introduce yourself to somebody who you haven't met yet. And you might find out that they're here on their first day. And typically it's the ones that are here on, for the very first time that are most excited at the opportunity to connect with somebody else. But they might be somebody who's been here for a couple years or for five years or for 10 years or maybe since Upper Room was planted in the first place. And for that length of time, maybe they felt like I, I'm a part of this church, but I still feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not being welcomed in or I'm not a part of the club or I'm not a, I just feel like I'm still a little bit on, on, the, on the outside by myself. Hey, go and introduce yourself. And, and if you're the one who's maybe been holding people out, go and introduce yourself. And if you're the kind of person that's been kind of isolating yourself, go and introduce yourself. And I, I go like this, but the truth is there's no wall actually, right? Because the whole point is that Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility that once was there, but isn't anymore. It's a flat walk across the room to introduce yourself to somebody new. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. <clears throat> the beauty, the brilliance, the wonder of Jesus and what he's done and what he's continuing to do in us is that no matter our backgrounds, no matter our differences, no matter our upbringings, no matter how diverse we may be, he has chosen to make us one. And this doesn't mean sameness. This doesn't mean homogeneity. It doesn't mean that we all look and feel and sound and talk the exact same. Because actually, the most, one of the most wonderful things about what Jesus has accomplished is he's allowed a diverse group of people to be a part of making up one beautiful picture. If you were a painter, you had one color, I mean, somebody might buy it, but I wouldn't say it was the most beautiful thing. We watch Bob Ross on Netflix today, and we see the way that he blends colors together, and the way that there's different accents, and the way that he uses all those cool tools to make um, not just flat paintings, but like they have texture, right? That's what we're getting at. Different, idea, different people from diverse backgrounds on one palette being used by the creator, the artist, to make something so beautiful. That's what Jesus has accomplished. There's nothing that holds us apart or keeps us apart. The walls are gone. And so Jesus, I praise your name that in your love, you saw us so different and did what was necessary to make us one with each other. Jesus, I thank you that you've 
made it possible for us to be made one, made right, reconciled, at peace with our creator. And that the creator's desire, his vision, God, your vision for the world is that, or for the church first, is that we would be united with one another. And actually, God, as you have that vision for us, you made it possible again with Jesus that we would be united with each other. And then as, as a church, as we live this way, serving one another humbly, walking together in love like you loved us first, the world around us will look at us and say, wow, that is so different. Maybe once I thought the church was a picture of division, but now I see it's a picture of beautiful unity in the midst of diversity. And I know, God, that that's what the world wants, a place to be loved and accepted no matter how different. This is the place. Your church is the place for that. And so as we stand and sing now, God, I pray that you would hear our praises. You would hear our voices raised high as one choir working together in one unified thought and voice to say, we love you and we praise you and we are thankful for the love you had for us. Make us ones that love others like you have loved us first. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.